verse 25, sorry, 26 to 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by by this statement wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be since I have not had sexual relation with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come to you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born The only one to be born will be called the Son of God. Amen. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we are eternally grateful. We're grateful that you sent your Son to condescend us, that you send your son to die for us in spite of us. Father, we're grateful and thankful for the greatest gift ever given. Father, we're thankful that all of that was done because of your great love for us that we just sang about. Father, that great love, the depths of which we cannot plumb, Father, we thank you for just that transforming gift that you've given. Father, as we remember that, as we celebrate that this season, Father, we pray that you help us be that echo of that great joy to our neighbors, to our family members, to our friends. Let them hear from us the reason why we celebrate. Father, we just thank you for the greatest gift ever given. And as we open your word to hear from you, to remind it of that great promise and of that Savior. Father, we pray that your word comes to us in power this morning. We know that it's a story that a lot of us are familiar with. But we pray for a special anointing for David this morning as he opens your word to us. Father, we pray that you speak to us through him. We pray that your word comes forth with clarity this morning. And we pray above everything else that you are glorified as we hear it, as it's spoken in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It is an amazing story. The birth of Jesus, the way it came about, what it means, what it should mean to us. So this fourth week of Advent, with its focus on love, the fourth week of Advent is on love, and it falls, of course, on Christmas Eve this year as we celebrate the the coming of the Messiah and the love associated with that, and also, of course, as we wait on the coming Messiah again to come and take us home. Much... Uh, Kevin even alluded to this, much like our our Easter celebration in the spring. We focus at that time on the resurrection, but we focus on the resurrection every time we gather together because it is because of the resurrection of Jesus that we have reason to celebrate. So in that way, it is a similar week. Our focus is still always on the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that it wasn't just a baby who was born, but it was... The uh, God himself who came, but we do focus this Sunday, this week, uh, focusing on his incarnation, the time of his birth. But the incarnation is not just about the birth of a son, really any more than, say, the birth of the son, the firstborn son of a royal family would not just be about the birth of a boy. It wouldn't be the the focus of the story. The the focus of the story would be about who he is to be and who he will be and the power that he will possess, that, that that he possesses in potential when he's born, but then it will be reality when he becomes king and what it means for the royal subjects. What I hope to do is for us to slow down a bit and to take, as Bio said, a a subject, a story that is very familiar to us, and to really kind of think about what this means to us, focusing on the magnitude of what Jesus did and the love that drove him in hopes that you and I can grasp the significance of this act of God and that that will prompt us to believe in Jesus to follow him or to follow him more closely and to give him the worship that he is due. So when we talk about the incarnation, it's the Latin word incarnatio, which you should really remember because you'll use it all the time. It literally means taking on flesh. And theologically, it refers to the embodiment of God in flesh, specifically Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Godhead. And so we look to first to John chapter 1. If you'll turn with me there, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John, who is called the apostle that Jesus loved, that was John's always his self-description, which is funny. We could go into a whole bunch of stuff with that one. But he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right there, we've got something of who God is, we have that the Word was in the beginning and the Word was with God. And and when it's just speaking of God, it's talking about the Father. So you had the, the beginning where the Word was with God and the Word was God. 
Now, I've gone through this with you before, but it's literally, in the Greek, it is the word was the God. So we know that he was with the Father, so he's not the Father, but he's also the God, so he is God. So we have Jesus, who is the word, and we'll talk about that in a second, being talked about as being with God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So we get this context that tells us that the word is another name for Jesus. If we look in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, you don't have to look there. And again, like I've said before, I am really bad in controlling this. There we go. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience in teaching. So the question I would ask is, what is the word? What is the word that he's talking about? Preach the word. Because normally when we talk about preach the word, we're talking about preaching the Bible. But there really wasn't a written Bible there. So what would Paul be telling Timothy to do? He'd be saying, preach Jesus. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have received. I think back in 1986, I was in Amsterdam and I was working for the Billy Graham Association for three weeks there, which was a really cool experience. 10,000 evangelists were in this massive auditorium. And I can remember standing in the back door, just listening to some of what was going on. And Billy Graham was standing up there pretty much like this, because this is the way he often stood. And he, and he stepped up and he said to the evangelist, he said, preach Jesus. And then he said, preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. And I thought he was never going to stop. But over and over he said that. He's like five, six times. Preach Jesus. The focus of the message is Jesus. And so whatever these evangelists did as they scattered back all around the world, the call was to preach Jesus. Preach the word. 1 John chapter 1, which is also written by the apostle John, his epistle in verse 1. He said, what was from the beginning? What we've heard what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands. So there's several things going on there. He says, he says we have, we've heard it. He says, we've seen it. We've observed it. We've touched it. So there's this, this, this whole being of presence with this subject. And he says, concerning what? The word of life. That, was, that life was revealed, we've seen it, we testify, and we declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. So John is saying, this is the same word that I write in the gospel. In the beginning was the word. And most clearly, I think we get the idea of the Word being Jesus in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. The rider called faithful and true with justice. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame. Many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one except himself knew. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh 
King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This word is the Christ Jesus, the Son of God. And so back in John chapter 1, John tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what I want to kind of slow down in on and see if we can really understand this. Because this is a concept that when you think about it, it really ought to kind of blow your mind. Because this is the eternal, one with the Father, creator, sustainer, ruler, overcoming word that took on flesh. That is a huge concept. It is a huge statement that God would take on flesh. And I've been trying to wrestle with how do you how do you even get a grasp of this at all? And so I started thinking about what is one of the most powerful things in the world, whether it's destructive or whatever. And I, and I thought about a nuclear bomb. You always kind of think about the big, huge mushroom cloud and how massive and how devastating it is. And so I kind of got to thinking, well, which one was the biggest? What's the biggest bomb that we know of? And the interwebs told me that the biggest bomb that has been tested is called the Tsar Bama. The Tsar Bomb Bama Bamba, I'm not sure. I would say Bama. It's it was created by Russia. It is a 50 megaton nuclear weapon. And so I started thinking, well, how how much devastation, how much power is in that? And if you look at just the explosion part. I'm not talking about the effects of the nuclear fallout that goes way, way, way beyond, but just the, the boom, just the boom part of that. If it landed in the middle of Chattanooga, which really don't want it to land right in the middle of Chattanooga, but if it were, then the explosion itself would like go out to Cleveland and Dunlap and South Pittsburgh and Lafayette and Dalton, just the part. That is a big explosion out of something that's essentially the size of a van, right? Huge impact. So I thought, man, that would be so devastating. The power that is within that small bomb. And then I think about Jesus born in the flesh in a manger. That baby contained all of the power that is in all of the universe as God in the flesh, in a manger, in a barn. The word was God. There was so much potential power in that child that this is the same one that when the father spoke the world into existence, It was through the Son. John 1, Hebrews 1, both tell us that. That kind of power that when God spoke the Word, if you will, exploded all into creation according to the way it was laid out in in the Word of God. But it was through, through the Son of God, the sovereign, holy, infinite, and eternally good Son who is indestructible spirit, became destructible flesh, and he dwelt with us among evil humanity. And when we say holy, we're talking about perfect purity. Have you ever stopped to think about holiness, really? What is that? Well, if you've ever had any sort of a surgical procedure, I had one two weeks ago, and I remember getting kind of rolled into this room, and 
and it was white and it was clean and they had scrubbed it and everybody was wearing all their scrubs and their stuff all over them, you know, and they come walking in and their hands are like this. They don't want to touch anything. And then they start laying off all this plastic and stuff. And I was like covered all in plastic and I was asleep at that point, but I'm told I was covered all in plastic and stuff. It's completely purely clean, right? Sterile is the word. All the instruments were in bags that had been sterilized and brought in. And I think about that and I think, was that a sterile room? No, not really. No, no, it really wasn't. So, I mean, if they, if they had found something that was like obviously unsterile, if they brought in an instrument that wasn't in a bag and somebody was picking their teeth with it or something, they would stop everything and they would reschedule this once they got everything clean. But it wasn't pure. I mean, they rolled me down the hallway and into this room. Who knows what I picked up on the way down, right? There's stuff floating in the air. It's like little buggies all flying in the air, and they're just looking for something to attack. They land on me. They land on the doctor. They land on the two guys that were pushing me down the hall. They brought in stuff that made that impure, right? So in the most sterile environment, there's something. Not with God. With God, there's zero zero foreign objects, zero infection. There is nothing. He is perfectly sterile. There is nothing that is imperfect in him. This is the holiness to the extent that even the slightest offense toward his holiness deserves immediate eradication, deserves immediate destruction. No questions asked. I want you to consider with me the story of Esther. If you think back to Esther, in that story, we are told uh, that the queen, the king's own wife, right? One of them, (laughs) but the king's own wife could not come into his presence. The law was passed, could not come into his presence without being summoned. So guys, if you're married, it's like, hey, honey, I'm sorry. Don't come in here because it won't go well for you, right? And you're like, well, I don't want to die, so I'm not going to do that. This is the kind of situation that they had set up here. And so if, if the queen decided she wanted to shoot up in there to, to ask the king a question, unless he put the scepter out, she could die immediately. She could be killed immediately. That's just with a guy. I mean, that's a dude, right? That's, a, that's someone who is a part of fallen humanity that, that can have that kind of power. But the great I am is the supreme being who established all that exists beyond the known universe. So you get a picture of how big and how magnificent and how holy and how amazing he is. Because if we can't stop long enough to get a picture of who God is, which is usually bigger than what we normally think of, more powerful, more holy, more magnificent, more overwhelming than anything that our mind can actually come up with. If we can't get that, it's going to be hard for us us to grasp what Jesus actually did and how magnificent it was that he did it because it tells us he became flesh. He literally put on skin, but it's more than just putting on skin. Because that would be like if I decided I'm going to go for Halloween as... SpongeBob SquarePants. Where that came from, I have no idea. But let's say I did. And I put on 
the ridiculous costume that looks like SpongeBob SquarePants. And I go traipsing around my neighborhood. I know I'm going to go traipsing around your neighborhood. I will not be seen in my neighborhood. But I'm walking around and people see me. You know what? I ain't square pop, square pants, square pants, pop pants. <laughs> you say that enough time enough. Square, what is it? SpongeBob. There's the word I forgot. SpongeBob square pants, right? I'm not him because I can't even call his name. On the inside, it's still just me. It's still just me. There is no SpongeBob square pants anywhere in that unit, in that costume. But Jesus didn't just put on a man costume. He took on the nature of man. He took on the very nature of mankind. So we have in one body the very nature of God. He didn't stop being God. He was fully God, but he took on the nature of man as well as that. Sinful, rebellious, insignificant mankind he identified with. And the question that I ask when I think about that is, is really I mean, the obvious question you should ask is why? Why? Why would he do that? It really doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems like a crazy story. I mean, I'm going to give you that. Give me one good reason why a supremely holy sovereign ruler of the vastness of the entire universe, and that's only the part that we can see, why he would ever do what seems so absurd to anyone that's thinking about it, to anyone who takes just a while to think as to become flesh and do what the Bible says that he did. Why would he do that? Well, let's first determine why, what it can't be, why he can't have done it. And that would be he cannot do it because of the worthiness of mankind. Right? We're not that great. I think you're great. I really, I think y'all are great. You ain't that great though. You know, you're not that good. You're not that good that the sovereign Lord of all the universe would come down, take on flesh, take on the nature of mankind, somebody who's sovereign, holy, great, and all the other things that I've talked about and come down here because y'all are awesome. It can't be that. So, if it can't be about the nature of man, there can only be one reason. And that must be all about the nature of God. It's all got to be about the nature of God. And what is it about his nature that would lead him to do something like this? And so we can't, we can't, we've got to limit ourselves to this subject of what would motivate him because the nature of God is expansive. I mean, we could, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks talking about the nature of God and we wouldn't even touch the surface most likely. But so what is it about the nature of God that would lead him to do something like this? And for that, I want us to turn to 1 John chapter 4. So while teaching, while John was teaching on why it is important to love one another, John says this, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. All right, so there's the part of the nature of God, at least in part, about what would motivate him to do this. So John's saying, look, you guys need to love each other. Hey, it's important that we love each other because if we don't love each other. We don't know God because God is love. And so there's something there that would drive, could be a driver 
of God to do what he has done. Verse 9, he says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. So when we think about motive, the first thing that we have to do when we understand truly the nature of God, when we understand the magnitude of who God is, the thing that God must do first, above all, beyond any other motivation, God must do what is most glorifying to himself. That has to be motive number one. If that's not motive number one, then God ceases to be God, right? So God has to be as the one above whom there is no one else. His first and foremost priority must be his own glory. And what we find is God is glorified when he comes for those he has chosen to create in his image. So he's created humanity as his image bearers. And he calls them to do, uh, to respond to what he has done by trusting in him, by believing in him, by putting their faith in him, by submitting to his lordship. By this, when we come to know him, when we come to trust him, we bring him glory. And so God is motivated by love, for his glory, but love for you and for me. It is, a, it is a big concept. And if we don't first understand why that first one has to be in place, then we start going, well, you know what? God's kind of self-centered, isn't he? God is the only one who can say that and it not be self-centered. God must be first and foremost about his glory, but he is motivated for us. And that is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that we rebelled against God. God created us as image bearers. He created us in his own likeness and we rebelled against him. That's Genesis chapter three. And then because of the rebellion against him, God rightly condemns man for his sin. So if we look at the progression, look at verse 16 of chapter two in Genesis. The Lord God commanded man. This is before it all fell. This is before it all went bad, right? This is chapter two before the fall in chapter three. In in Genesis chapter two, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any of the garden. The The woman said, wait, did I get that right? 16? It dropped off one of my verses. So you can eat from any tree in the garden, but the one that's in the center of the garden, you must not eat. That's the command. All right, then we get over here to uh, chapter three. But the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it. What is going on with these slides? All right, forget the slides for a second. Let me just trace this out for you. Good grief. Merry Christmas. So in chapter two, God lays out the rule. You, man, Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but the one in the middle of the garden, you must not eat. So that's what he's what they're told. They know it, they've got it. And we know that they have it because in chapter three, you've got the serpent that comes to Eve. And we know Adam's somewhere close by, lurking around. No, we don't know what he's doing specifically, but he's there. And so he starts to tempt her. What, what did God say? She goes, well, look, we can eat of any tree in the garden, but we can't eat of the one in the middle. 
of the garden. Because if we do, we'll surely die. So we have the command. We know that they got it because she said it again. We got it. And they broke it. And because they broke it, because they they rebelled against God in that way, then Paul, looking back, says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That in the moment that that was done, spiritual death came. And through the rebellion of Adam, the whole family line became corrupt. Every single person has sinned by nature and by choice. right? Because we're a part of the family, we are sinners. We identify as sinners, but we've also sinned by choice. So if we look in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we see how it's inherited. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So there is that inherited part of sin. But before we start thinking, Dadgummit, that Adam, good night. Remember in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's different because this is the, the have sinned. These are the actions. So I am a sinner. I'm born as a sinner, but I confirm it because I have sinned. Right? And so that's all of us. We are all in that. Through the rebellion of Adam, the whole family line goes down the tubes, if you will. So I'm going to ask you a question. Can you do anything to save yourself? Can you do anything to save yourself? Yes, sure you can. The Bible says you just have to keep the law. All of the law. Every word of the law. From the time you were born until the time you die. If you can do that, you can save yourself. So we know that. If you've done that, please let me know. I'd like to talk to you afterwards. James chapter 2, though, says this. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't commit murder. So if you do not commit murder, but you are a... uh, So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder... You're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. So he makes clear, look, you, you've got to keep it all. You may say, I, I do pretty good on some of these. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I haven't killed anybody. But have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever told a lie? If so, you're a lawbreaker and you're done, right? It's all over. It's done. But he says here, act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. The law of freedom is also called the law of love. So because as the law of love is that of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made, it leads us to true freedom. And so because God is holy, both holy and love, there is both justice and mercy. And in his mercy, we find freedom. So justice, we find in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 22 says, Therefore it was credited to him for righteousness. Who is that? He's talking about Abraham. The promise was made to Abraham. It was credited to him for righteousness. And he's talking about his faith. So Abraham believed, and that belief was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, 
but also it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised uh, Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I've done it again. No, that's right. That's right. I think I'm not going to do this again. Because it was easy the first couple of times and now it's not so hard, not so easy anymore. So this is, no, that's right. He was <laughs> delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Anything, any way that we can try to save ourselves other than Jesus having done it, than Jesus being the source of our salvation, than Jesus being the way in which we come to know Jesus, it leads to death. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever. So this is, we are told what hell was created for. The devil who, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire the, with the false prophets. They will be tormented, tormented day and night. And this is the same fate that is described as the goats in Matthew 25. So humans who do not follow Jesus, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So there is justice. If we follow Jesus, we trust in him based on the work that he has done, we have eternal life. If we rebel against him, we don't follow after him, we don't trust in him, then we have the same fate as the devil does. So there is justice in that. And there's also mercy. And that is found in John 3, 16. But you know this one, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Perish here refers to the, the eternal destruction in comparison to the eternal life. Romans chapter five, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access by him or through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. For we know that the affliction produces endurance. In verse six, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This was all the work of the triune God. Every single bit of this is the work of the triune God through the child that came and was put in the manger. The one who came to pay for our penalty. First John chapter four, back to where we were in verse 10. For if while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Oh my goodness. There it is. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the love that compelled Jesus to do what he did. This is the love that brought him out of heaven and all of its glory and come and dwell among us. So I want us to think about this, to think about what what it cost Jesus, what Jesus did for us to be able to celebrate the fact that he came. The fact that we no longer have to pay for the penalty of our sins. Jesus came and poured himself out, stepping out of heaven, stepping out of total perfection, in a, out of a perfect joy-filled relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit 
sovereign ruler of his own creation. He laid aside all the rights of the, of the sovereign Lord, Philippians chapter 2 tells us. He didn't stop being God, but he laid aside all the rights of being God so that he could be obedient. He came into, those, into this world in the most humble of circumstances to unlikely parents, a common tradesman, a young girl who was unmarried, who was a virgin. He was raised as a, as a common tradesman as well. He was born essentially in a barn. He lived in disrespected region of Nazareth. There was nowhere to call home. Yet he lived a sinful life, which took a great deal of sacrifice. Because the Bible says that he was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. He did not sin. He was despised, he was punished, he he was humiliated, and he was tortured. He died as a criminal in the most painful and humiliating way that the Romans could come up with, with not even a place of his own for burial. So the last question is this. Next to the last question. Did he have to do it? Did Jesus have to do that? The answer is no. No, he didn't have to do this. He was talking in John chapter 10. John writes that Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I've received this command from the Father. So it's a complex answer right there. But then in Matthew 26, when Jesus was being arrested and Peter stepped up, took out his sword, cut off the ear of Malchus, one of the servants. Jesus rebuked Peter and he said to him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would scripture be fulfilled that says that it must happen this way? So what, what's the real answer? The real answer is, No, Jesus, even though he received this command from the Father, he also said, look, I could call on the Father right now. God would still deliver me out of this. Like if I I decided to abandon this, I could do that. And yet the Father would not be glorified in that. You and I would be hopeless without that. And so here, if we bring all this down to one thing, we start to realize that Jesus Christ did not have to do it, but if he didn't do it, we are without hope at all. And so in that sense, Jesus himself was compelled to do it. Jesus himself made the decision to do what we could not do for the glory of the Father. There's that number one, but also for the deliverance of you and me. And so when we think, as we're going through this Christmas season, and we're thinking about all the stuff, we do the presents and the food and whatever you do for your your traditions, and we go, happy birthday, Jesus. We need to stop. We need to stop and reflect what really goes into all of that. What really did it cost Jesus? And Jesus had a choice. Jesus had a choice. When push comes to shove, he had a choice. But the love of the word was compelled to do what he did for you. So 
So wherever you are today, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through today, what I want you to see is there is a God who within him contains all the power that there is. And he could do whatever he wanted to do. And he chose to come to this earth as a baby who was dependent, crazy. He was dependent on other fallen, weak human beings to take care of him and to raise him. And he went through it all. And he went to the cross and he stayed on the cross to pay for our sin. And he rose again as conquering over sin and death and did that for you. So what I hope you will do this this Christmas season is that you will personally experience the love of the word, the love of the word of God, Jesus himself, that you will come to follow him. And if you have followed him, to follow him more closely and to proclaim with your word and your life and your family and your work and your lifestyle, everything that you do, glory to God in the highest because he is worthy of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you God, every time I say that, I usually get stopped in my tracks. Thank you is such an inadequate little phrase to say for what you have done and who you are. But God, we have inadequate words that come out of inadequate mouths, that come from inadequate hearts, Lord, to give you what you deserve. So, Lord God, I pray that you will have mercy on us, that in our weakness, in our inabilities, in our fallenness. I pray that you will honor yourself in us, Lord. I thank you for always remembering and thinking not so much on our fallenness, but on our redemption. And so, Lord Jesus, we celebrate you today. We give you praise and glory today. It's in the name of Christ I pray now. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we prepare for this final song. Thank you for sticking with me through all of my faux pas today. Um, And hopefully the message is clear. Hopefully the message is clear that Jesus loves you. And hopefully the message is clear that if you don't know him, you can come to have and receive eternal life today by trusting him, repenting of your sins and trusting him. So as we stand, as we are standing, as we sing, uh, if you want to talk about any of this, I'm going to be in the back. I'll be happy to chat with you, to pray with you. But otherwise, let's give Jesus the glory that he is due as we close out our time together.